This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the 500th edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Jim Hightower, The David Pakman Show, The Green News Report, The Nation Magazine, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, Counterspin, and The Jimmy Dore Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. Every day our economy sinks further into what could be called a double-dip recession. And that is great news because it's all going to be blamed on Barack Obama. Jim? Suddenly, uh, Barack Obama looks much more vulnerable than he did only a few months ago. President Obama is a one-term president. The Republicans, if they play this right, they could run Lassie and win. Yes, even Lassie could beat Obama. Of course, she'd never get the Republican nomination. Helping Timmy out of that well is socialism. (laughs) Unfortunately, there are still a few hurdles to clear before we get our country back from the people we voted for. You see, Obama owns the youth vote. The only way kids could love Obama more is if he were also a skate park. (laughs) And right now, folks, the GOP brand is about as popular with kids as an episode of 60 Minutes hosted by a tube of Sensodyne. (laughs) Jim? The reality is that young voters, if you look at them, consistently find problems with Republicans. In the 2008 cycle, none of the Republicans heavily courted the youth vote. 62% of 18-year-old, 18 to 29-year-olds voted Democratic. What the Republicans don't get is that the anti-gay, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim stuff they uh, put out is toxic to the under 35s. That's right. Old man McCain would be president if it wasn't for you meddling kids. <laughs> And I don't buy, frankly, folks, I do not buy the argument that young voters are turned off by Republican ideas. Pretty much everyone has described Paul Ryan's Medicare cuts as radical. (laughs) But evidently, these young homeboys are too busy doing the Macarena and feeding their Tamagotchis while listening to Better Than Ezra on their Discmans. Now, fortunately, oh yeah. I'm hip to the scene. Hey, Jay, it's uh, Jamie Kilstein from Citizen Radio. Allison and I will both be calling and leaving separate messages because she says she wants plausible deniability uh, for whatever I say. Anyway, uh, I just want to say congratulations, man. I mean, uh, from the bottom of my heart, we would not have a show uh, if it wasn't for Best of the Left. Uh, a long while ago, Jay, I didn't know anything about podcasts, I didn't know what Best of the Left was, but Jay emailed and said he wanted to play our little radio show on his station, and I thought he was just some punk kid, and I was like, yeah, I'll help that starving artist out, and uh, turns out he was way more popular than us and had uh, a really great show. And a lot of the fans we've acquired from Jay's show, uh, from Best of the Left, have gone on to be uh, dear friends of ours, huge supporters of ours, and just the greatest, most unique, uh, smartest, nerdiest, funniest, Simpson-quoting uh, activist kids that I'm, I'm honored to know, and uh, I'm honored to know Jay uh, as well. Jay, I love you, man. Congratulations. Uh, here's the 500 more. Here is your next quote. In just a matter of weeks, he has gone from celebrated conservative visionary to the Uncle Fester of the Republican Party. 
That was Dante Scala. He's a political scientist talking about a candidate whose entire campaign staff resigned en masse on Thursday. Who? Newt Gingrich. Yes, indeed, Newt Gingrich. I, uh... Newt Gingrich, his campaign manager, his spokesman, his strategists and consultants, his field uh, operatives in Iowa, they all walked out. They said it was because they had a, quote, different vision for the direction of the presidential campaign. We assumed the direction they wanted was towards winning. <laughs> Instead, Newt, whose campaign rollout a few weeks ago was a disaster, decided to then disappear for two weeks on a Mediterranean cruise because his wife really wanted to go. Gingrich said the cruise wasn't a total waste of time and energy. He secured the endorsement of Julie, the cruise director. <laughs> And Isaac, the bartender, is on the fence, but we think persuadable. <laughs> well, we Republicans are a little slow. Uh, we're, we're conservative because we like to think things out carefully, and after, you know, 16 <laughs> years of Newton, we decided... Wait a minute! Uh, yeah, on, on, on the other hand, you know, cruising around Corfu with your trophy wife or, you know, petting the pig in Des Moines, it's hard to argue with. <laughs> That's true. You know, Another Republican candidate news this week, we want to keep you up to date, Senator Rick Santorum launched his candidacy with a speech in which he said the GIs who landed at Normandy did so to save us all from the peril of government-run health care. <laughs> he said that. And it's true, because you all remember that big speech from the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. Tom Hanks says to his men, I'll see you on the beach, and if you get killed, remember, at least your grandchildren won't be forced to buy health insurance through public exchanges. <laughs> a tear came to my eye. And this is, this is my favorite, Repu because, you know, we only keep you apprised because you make your choice as a Republican nominee. Herman Cain uh, said he would protect the U.S. border with Mexico by building a great wall like in China, electrifying it, then building a moat in front of it and filling that moat with alligators. That's his immigration policy. Yeah, yeah. But it's all going to have to be Mexican labor. Yeah, no. <laughs> Jay, it's Allison Kilkenny from the shrill, unreasonable citizen radio. Uh, just calling to congratulate you on 500 spectacular episodes and to say that, uh, and I'm sure all your listeners already know this, but Jay is one of the most generous, sweet people we've ever had the honor of meeting. Um, he is a hustler. He is tireless in his work. And I don't think any of his listeners really understand how hard he does work. So um, you should be very appreciative of him and all of the wonderful work he does. We love Best of the Last. And, yeah, thanks so much, Jay. And to anybody listening who does not like Citizen Radio, just know that without Jay, there would be no Citizen Radio. So uh, if you're angry at us, you know, just yell at Jay. Thanks, Jay. Happy 500 episodes. Anybody's guess It might be a test or It might not be Anything you need to Worry about You've gotta love Newt Gingrich If only for his entertainment value He is so full of himself That essence of Newt keeps spilling Out of his mouth For example, trying to pose as a Washington outsider In his presidential run this consummate Washington insider has taken to hugging up Texas Governor Rick Perry. 
That's because Perry has puffed up his right-wing bona fides by stridently bashing Washington, big government, and all things Obama, while boasting that he has created the Texas economic miracle. Gingrich, eager to identify with this Lone Star image, subsequently boasted that I know how to get the whole country to resemble Texas. Wow, there's an economic threat that no American should take lightly. Texas, Newt? Really? Look behind Perry's Texas bunkum, and you'll find smoke and mirrors, political facades, right-wing goofiness, and a rabbit in a hat. But no miracle, unless you count the second-worst state budget deficit in the country as a miracle. It would take a two-year budget of $99 billion just to meet the current miserly level of public services. That level, by the way, has bought Texas the bragging rights of being at or near the top in such categories as people with no health care, poverty rates, lowest wages, most regressive tax system, high school dropouts, mental health spending, and income gap between rich and poor. However, at the insistence of Governor Miracle, the legislature has produced a two-year budget nearly $20 billion short of the state's already inadequate spending levels. As a result, 100,000 teachers are being fired, college access is being shut off for thousands, nursing homes are being closed, and the needy? Well, Perry has created a yo-yo program for the poor. You're on your own. This is Jim Hightower saying, if Texas is Newt's model, wow, he must really hate his country. And speaking of somebody else whose campaign seems to be falling apart, Newt Gingrich's advisors are just resigning as a group. It's incredible what's going on with Newt Gingrich. His top staff quit just a few days ago, and he's acting like his campaign is going to continue no matter what, and that this is not going to affect it. I'm not convinced of that. I'm not convinced of that at all. And when he was actually asked about what it is that happened, he said, well, I'm intent on using technology and standing out at debates to get traction, and my advisors believe I need to run a campaign that's more traditional grassroots techniques. Somehow, I don't think Twitter is why Newt Gingrich's advisors are, are all resigning. It right. just doesn't make sense to me. No. And there's a couple of things going on behind the scenes here. One is that one official says the last straw was when Newt Gingrich last week went ahead with this cruise that he had to plan to the Greek Isles with his wife. And I guess his, some of his staffers did, did not like that at all. The other thing that's going on is that some of his staffers have previous associations with Texas Governor Rick Perry. It's seeming more and more like Rick Perry may run for president himself, even though his, his former advisors have all denied that it has anything to do with why they resigned. We know that advisors always will deny things until they can't be denied anymore. So that, that could be a factor. It's realistic to me that it could be a factor. Sure. What's amazing is that 
Maybe Newt's right about Twitter, <laughs> even though he didn't mention it specifically, just mentioning technology. Sarah Palin's not even an official candidate. She's doing the better campaigning than, compared to all these candidates with a Twitter account and a bus with the Constitution on the side. Yeah, I don't think it takes much smarts to realize the type of campaign you have to run now. I think Obama pretty much uh, set the, the groundwork for that. In what, in terms of technology? Right. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, it is true that it was a stark contrast in terms of the email and online outreach between Obama and McCain. McCain was just, I was on both email lists. I got almost nothing, period, from the McCain people, whereas Barack Obama, it was actually getting to the point of annoying spam, to be honest. Yeah. But very, very active. I mean, would, would Newt's advisors leave because, uh, because they learned something that, uh, they thought would just make it completely impossible for New Gingrich to have any chance. That's possible. That's I mean, definitely that's possible. It's, it's it's not clear. I just don't believe that it's because Newt was more focused on using technology that they said, actually, we're all out of here as a group. It's completely yeah. unbelievable. It doesn't literally unbelievable. It, I can't. I just don't believe it. Yeah. Well, Jay, I can barely believe it, but it's 500 episodes of Best of the Left podcast. You know, it's incredible. The show has changed so much over the 500 episodes, but at the same time, the good things about it haven't changed at all. Congratulations. Here's to another 500 episodes, and here's to plenty more David Pakman show being featured incredibly prominently in those next 500 episodes. Congratulations, Jay. Much was made of Sarah Palin's unique understanding of the story of Paul Revere last week. That he rode a horse through town ringing a bell to warn the British that they wouldn't take away our guns while firing warning shots. Well, her supporters quickly came to her defense by doing what? They attempted to change the Wikipedia page to reflect the version of events that she shared. Exactly right. <laughs> As... George Santayana once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it unless somebody can just go in and do a quick edit without anyone noticing. <laughs> and as I said, she's working for the other side. Yeah. <laughs> Soon after she made that statement on local TV in Boston, the Wikipedia article mentioned that one account of the ride of Paul Revere, quote, suggests that Revere rang bells during his ride, unquote. That entry was frozen and restored by Wikipedia, but there are indications that Palin supporters have moved on to other subjects. For example, the Wikipedia article on Arctic Wolves says, enjoys being shot from helicopters. <laughs> and the entry for refudiate says, it is so a word, you communists. You think you got it, oh, you think you got it, but got it, just don't get it till there's nothing at all. Get together, oh, we get together, but separate's always better when there's feelings involved. If what they say that nothing is forever, then what makes, the what makes, the what makes love the exceptions? Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, are we so in denial when we know we're not happy?
The 2012 presidential campaign is already underway, and so is the pandering. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich and former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty are suddenly running away as fast as they can from their previous positions on climate change. Gingrich and Pawlenty once both expressed inconvenient support for the scientific consensus and cap-and-trade legislation, but both are now flip-flopping, with Pawlenty even apologizing recently at a debate. I was wrong, it was a mistake, and I'm sorry. But bucking the trend is former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. Last week, Romney came right out and reaffirmed his belief that the climate is changing and humans are responsible, at least partly. I don't uh, speak for the scientific community, of course, um, but I believe the world is getting warmer. Uh, and, and number two, I believe the humans contribute to that. And so I think it's important for us to reduce our emissions of, of pollutants and greenhouse gases that may well be significant contributors to, uh, to the climate change and the, and the global warming that you're saying. Uh-oh, Romney's in trouble. That is exactly contrary to Republican orthodoxy these days. Republican orthodoxy developed over just the past few months. A reminder that prior to that, they were all in favor of cap and trade, which was a Republican idea in the first place, and it was supported and signed and carried out by both Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. in successfully curbing acid rain and closing the hole in the ozone. Oh, well, I guess they were for it before they were against it. Hi, Jay. John Sinton, founding president of Air America Radio and the new smartphone app, Progressive Voices. I'm calling to wish you a happy 500th show. Man, I remember when you were just 400. Nice going. This week, uh, we're doing something a little different on the breakdown. Usually, our questions focus on technical matters, um, substantive issues of policy, the latest developments in the Middle East. This week, we have a good old-fashioned political question from friend of the show, J.A. Meyerson. That's J.A. Meyerson, J-A-M-Y-E-R-S-O-N on Twitter. He says, which GOP candidate can keep the coalition together? Parentheses, religious, Tea Party, Palinian, and Paulian, business, etc. I think it's a great question, particularly given the fact that we had the first big high-profile Republican Republican debate this week on CNN. And joining me now to discuss this is Dave Weigel. He's the political reporter for Slate, contributor to MSNBC. I'm catching him over an iPhone connection in Minneapolis, where he is for Netroots Nation. Dave, uh, welcome to The Breakdown. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so I think this is a really interesting question because before we get to the question of like who can keep the coalition together, maybe let's start with a more general question about what do you see as the key components of the Republican coalition right now, and then how would you rate the relationship between those different groups? Well, I actually think you've got a more important Republican coalition that you've had in some time, but I feel like it's even more united, united than it was in 1999-2000 when George Bush was hoisted on the party. You have still a pretty high level of excitement about what the Republicans in Congress are doing, and you you have unity. I don't see a lot of dissent. One of my peas of the media is every time some kind of penny anti-Tea Party group puts out a press release saying that they're angry about something, it's covered 
as if it was taken from Mount Sinai. Most conservatives are very happy. Social conservatives, economic conservatives, libertarians, people just the Fed are all working together pretty well. That's interesting. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is the degree to which there has Mitch Daniels, who is the governor from Indiana, who's chosen not to run for president, had this phrase called a social issues truce. And I've talked to some folks in my reporting in which it's very clear that there's a among the sort of political operative class on the Republican side, there's an, a, a deep understanding that the, the winning issues for them, particularly in sort of a wedge way in terms of winning over independence and channeling frustration with the economic state of the country, the winning issues are debt, deficit, out of quote unquote out of control spending, Obamacare, etc. Much more than they are gay marriage, abortion, etc. How much is that thinking sort of permeating the grassroots right now? Pretty deeply. That's another thing. I, I think it's important to distinguish between people who make statements and people who are on the ground. I mean, I have heard many, many conservatives who have something to gain, some activists who have something to gain. I'm talking about their side of the movement needing to muscle over another side, mentioned the social truth. But I actually don't ever think I've heard a voter bring that up unbidden. I mean, obviously, they're not going to now that Mitch Daniels isn't running. They do his term. And the reason is that they basically agree with it. There is very little disagreement that most important defining eschatological existential issue of the moment is the debt. And if you're a Christian conservative, you believe that debt is a crushing problem that we don't want to become like Europe. There's just all sorts of angst bound up into the idea that America has spent too much. I feel I've also found that religious conservatives have better answers for what will happen if you're serious about rolling back the entitlement state. Religious conservatives will say, well, we'll do better without it because Marvin Olasky says, and like Bill Bennett says, and like really everyone in the movement says, the big threat to Christian charity, to personal charity, all religious togetherness really is government replacing it. And that will thrive if we remove the entitlement state, just like a grass drives if you take the rock off. I think another reason you're hearing less about this is, frankly, conservatives give away advantages when they fight on social issues. And I think some of the early problems they've had with momentum has been picking a fight in the state or in, in Congress about abortion, right. because that's not why voters voted for them. So conservatives, if they're really strategic about it, have to realize that just the country's not focused on, on their issues right now. What I find interesting, and then we're going to turn to another issue about sort of the welfare state, and then we'll sort of talk candidates. But what I find interesting is the kind of synthesis, the ways in which the kind of debt anxiety has been integrated into a sort of religious narrative of sort of virtue lost, right? It fits very easily with the notion of the prodigal son, the wayward sinner who goes out and, and sins by being profligate and now is, in, is sort of condemned to penury, but it's like virtuous penury, that that's what like austerity represents is the kind of penitence for for the bubble years essentially and that that anxiety and that narrative like the two can fit very nicely together from different wings of the movement in that sort of story i think that's very astute that they just have a a long history of american decline that i don't think progressives understand i was fond the other day of uh, michelle goldberg's piece about michelle bachman because she points out that if you read what bachman has read the books that your books you read, the people you talk to if you go to Oral Roberts University, as she did, there's a very straight line narrative about how the founders were Christians who created a perfect society. They were against slavery. They were for capitalism. They were really for all these completely out-of-chronology things, <laughs> if you think about it. And America lost its way when the progressives inspired by socialism started to take you know, replace what we had with, with government. And Barack Obama is the, the summation of all that. You know, whenever a big wave election 
happens, the party that won thinks this validates everything they everything they say down to the fine print. It, it didn't. I want to turn to this this issue of kind of overreach or the degree to which you know a wave election can lead you to believe that the public has sort of bought into the totality of your agenda when in fact they're expressing a fairly transitory sentiment that is directed against the, the current incumbent and, a, and channeling their economic frustration. And I feel like that's been most made manifest in the Paul Ryan budget. I, and I wonder how you see this central fundamental tension playing out through the primaries. How do they sort of square the circle of the fact that they have to, by their own logic, they have to go after these programs, which are very popular with their own base. Well, I think it all starts with the argument that Barack Obama has failed. And from there, that's something that a lot of people who voted for Obama will agree with. I mean, I'm at Netroots right now, and there are, if I wanted to, I don't know if I could find a progressive who who would say I'm 100% happy with what we've achieved. So you start the argument that everything's failed, and you expand on that by saying the reason it's failed is because it was destined to, and none of these programs will actually work in the long run. We've been living on borrowed money. I mean, there are people who win in every ele- every wave election. We don't win the intellectual argument with voters, but they are having the right party next to their name. Right. And so there are many people who vote from Mayor Romney who totally disagree with this. I mean, if you tease the nominee, who totally disagree. They want to keep all this stuff. And I met a voter in New Hampshire two days ago who had voted for or liked Obama but was disappointed. And she was thinking about voting for Romney. And the reason she gave me was that. She was hopeful that Romney, if he was president, would create a jobs like a federal jobs program. <laughs> he obviously won't. Right, he was like right, there are people right. who don't who don't click it now. Sure. Can you reach out to those people and, and target them and explain this won't work? You can, but the argument is hampered by the fact that you have four years of president who didn't do what they wanted. Right. So the choice between now you can win like that. You know, George W. Bush won with voters who weren't that excited. But the point is, I think it's actually it's actually fairly easy in the American system where you've got twenty five, thirty percent of people who agree instinctively with this to just keep adding to that coalition by making right, the argument. Right. The, point, the point being that you don't have to like, you can, essentially that you can paper this over. You can get people who, if, you know, who are 70 years old and love medic, their Medicare and if you took it away would come after you with a hatchet, you can get them to vote for you on an agenda that's fairly going after that program because there's so many other things that are sort of been put into play. I think that's true. And Republicans have a lot of time to craft this. Finally, I guess what I'm what I'm hearing from you actually to to, to bring it around to Jay Myerson's original question about which candidate can keep the coalition together. It sounds like you think that the the nature of being sort of in the wilderness, running against an incumbent, the amount of sort of conservative grassroots activation there is, is such that whoever wins the nom- nomination is gonna is gonna inherit a fairly unified coalition. I think so. I think you saw that this week with Mitt Romney. I mean, for the first time in a long time. You know, the, the nice thing about going to a debate in the spin room is you can sort of see the conventional narrative hardening like amber whenever, whenever, in real time. This is the first week that people in the press thought, well, Mitt Romney might actually be the nominee because it's tough to go after him. If no one's actually going to go after him on the spots on his record, then right. he's going he's gonna to blaze through because he's, he's the most electable. And so I, I, I also think CNN came out at the same time as a debate with a poll showing that 75% of Republicans are more concerned with electability. You know, the poll today, Rasmussen, national poll doesn't mean everything, but it shows Romney in front, Bachman in second, Kane in third, Paul Lenti at 6%. Right. And the more, the more you see, that's just more evidence. The only thing you see from national poll is that's evidence that people are not ruling out the guy. Right. Uh, and which points to a pretty firm coalition when they're done with it. Dave Weigel is a political reporter for Slate Magazine. He is a contributor for MSNBC. Dave, thanks so much for uh, coming on The Breakdown. 
Well, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know that I just want to look some more. It's Sam Cedar from the Majority Report. I just wanted to say uh, congratulations to Best of the Left on episode 500. I love listening to the Best of the Left. I love hearing myself on the Best of the Left. Into it even more than I love just hearing myself. I would trade hearing myself on the best of the left uh, if it meant that I couldn't listen to the best of the left. And uh, why wouldn't I love it? It's it's the best of the left. Congratulations again. I can't wait for the next 500. Yes, Republicans running for that party's presidential nomination continue to try to wrestle with Anthony Weiner's penis for control of the news cycle. Some candidates like Tim Pawlenty are making the case for straight talk. I'm willing to tell Americans the hard truth. I went to Iowa and said we need to phase out federal ethanol subsidies. I went to Florida and said we need to raise the retirement age for the next generation. I went to New York City and told Wall Street that the era of bailouts, carve-outs, and handouts had to end. I went to Wisconsin, and I said, everyone here needs to lose like 20 to 25 pounds. <laughs> I, I, went, I went to Idaho, and I told them, potatoes are nothing but white trash yams. <laughs> to save time, I, I, uh, instead of going to Massachusetts, I just stepped in dog <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Who's got next? Boom! While Palenti attempts to get us to face the problem inside us, candidate Herman Cain offers real solutions to fictional issues. Don't try to pass a 2,700-page bill. You and I didn't have time to read it. We're too busy trying to live. Send our kids to school. Well, that's why I'm going to only allow small bills. Three pages. You don't have time to read that one over the dinner table. Bills will be three pages. If I am president, treaties will have to fit on the back of a cereal box. <laughs> From now on, the State of the Union address will be delivered in the form of a fortune cookie. I am Herman Cain, and I do not like to read. Mitt Romney went on uh, Piers Morgan's program and he got asked about uh, gay rights. He had some quizzical answers. We rather enjoyed them, wanted to share them with you. Uh, first, uh, what is his position on gay rights? Let's go to clip seven. Gay rights? I've always been in favor of preventing discrimination against people, whether they are uh, homosexual or, or, uh, or straight. But that would imply. But, that but, would imply. No, no, let me, let me, let me okay, finish. Let, let me finish. finish. At the same time, I said, I believe that marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman. And that position has not changed. And I, I read now and then that I've changed my mind on gay rights. Simply not true. I am in favor of gay rights. 
but I believe marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. All right. Uh, now, of course, he says that because if, in fact, he has not switched his position on gay rights, it would be the first position he holds that he has not switched. Okay. So now Piers Morgan is going to press on that point and ask if he has, in fact, changed or not. Clip it. Yeah, but given that most gays would like the right now to legally get married in, in many states in America, when, when you, I you ran, are not in favor of all gay rights, are you? And, and at the time when I ran for office, I made that very clear. I met with uh, uh, leaders of the gay yeah, but community. Yeah, when you say, if you don't mind me saying, when you say I'm in favor of gay rights, you're not. You're in favor of some but what, at all. What happened was that the, gay, right? the gay community... Uh, the gay community changed their perspective as to what they wanted. When I ran for governor, one of the big issues was marriage, gay marriage. My opponent said she'd sign a bill in favor of gay marriage. I said I would not, that I oppose same-sex marriage. At the same time, I would advance the, the uh, if you will, the efforts not to discriminate against people who are gay. You know, that is one of my favorite Romney excuses of all time. I didn't change my position. The gay rights community changed their position. Next thing you know, they want more and more gay rights. I was willing to give them a little bit, and then they come and ask for gay marriage. Whoa, whoa I didn't sign on for that, buddy. You know, you, you, there you go again, uh, changing your position. How dare you? Now you want almost all the rights of straight people. No, you get some of the rights of straight people. Of course not all of them. You're gay. That's basically what Romney's saying in an amusing kind of way. Uh, well, next he gets asked, uh, what gay rights are you in favor of? Let's find out. Clip 9. And, what and what and is that, the gay that right posture. that you're in favor of? Well, equal rights in, our, in, uh, in employment, equal rights in, uh, I mean, for instance, as, as the governor, I had members of my team that were gay. I appointed a couple of judges who apparently I find out were, were gay. Look, I didn't ask people. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. He's trying to say that he was in favor of some gay rights, right? But in the middle, he can't help himself. He's Mitt Romney. So he's like... You know, I appointed a couple of people who were gay. I mean, I didn't know they were gay, otherwise I wouldn't appoint them. But it turns out later they were gay. Who knew? I mean, I didn't ask him. I wouldn't ask. I don't know. Okay. Why? Because on the one hand, he wants to say, look, I am in favor of gay rights. The, because most voters, if he goes to a general election, are definitely in favor of not discriminating based on sexual orientation, I should say, uh, for employment, for example, right? Uh, but on the other hand, he's in a Republican primary. And he's got to appeal to those guys. He's like, oh, I didn't put gay judges in there on purpose. Come to find out later they were gay, but okay, what could I do? I didn't ask. Okay, so, all right. So how about, is it a sin? Let's try to find that out. Clip that. Does your faith mean that you view homosexuality as a sin? Uh, you know, I, 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 I separate quite distinctly uh, matters of personal faith from the leadership that one has uh, in, a, in a political sense. Can you do I, that? Absolutely. Uh, you're, Seriously? You're, you, 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 you don't begin to apply the doctrines of a religion to responsibility for, for guiding a nation or for guiding a state. But what, what is so, the Mormon position on homosexuality being a sin? You know, that's something that you can take up with the church. I'm not a, spokes, you know? I'm not a spokesman for my church. But don't you know? I, I, I'm not a spokesman for my church. And one thing I'm not going to do in running for president is become a spokesman for my church or apply a, a religious test which simply is forbidden by the Constitution. I'm not going there. So I, I can tell you, if you want to learn more about my church, mm. talk to my church. If you want to learn what, what I would do as okay, president... Let me ask you then. Do, yeah. do you personally think homosexuality is a sin? N nice try, but I'm not going to get into... That's a valid question, uh, isn't it? It, it, it? It's a valid question, and my answer is, nice try. <laughs> so, you're not going to answer it. It's a valid question, but I'm not going to go there, because that would cause me political trouble either way. So, nice try, but I'm not going to tell you my real opinion. right? And now, most Republicans, of course, are 
incredibly proud to wrap themselves in their religion. And they say, oh, yeah, my religion says this. My we should be guided by our Judeo-Christian heritage, etc. Why is Romney not saying that? Of course, it's because he's Mormon. And there's another poll out today saying that over a third of Republican voters would never vote for a Mormon. So he's saying, religion? <laughs> religion? No, I would never get religion involved. I mean, if you're a Mormon, I wouldn't get it involved. Of course not. I'm surprised he hasn't converted yet. Maybe later in the primary process. That's also coming. You never know with Mitt Romney. Hi, this is Jane Huger of the Young Turks. And I just wanted to congratulate Jay uh, from Best of the Left podcast for what is going to be the 500th episode. And I want to tell all of you guys listening that there are some lights in the wilderness and that Jay is one of those guys. Now, some of the people that he featured in his podcast wound up becoming people that work on cable news, such as myself, people who are nationally syndicated radio stars, Tom Hartman, etc., and some who also did well online. The Young Turks are about to hit half a billion views. And the reason I tell you that is because Jay was part and parcel of making that happen. When no one else believed, Jay believed in every time he put together a podcast featuring all of us to get the word out. And it was brave, and it was a lot of hard work, and I'm here to say that it was very, very appreciated, and it's still a fantastic podcast. I want to thank everybody who listens to it, and everybody who's found our show, The Young Turks, through it. And of course, I want to thank Jay most of all. A new entry in the race for the Republican nomination for the 2012 presidential election. Former Utah Governor John Huntsman announced his campaign on Tuesday with the Statue of Liberty as his backdrop. Huntsman, positioning himself as a centrist Republican, says he supports the scientific consensus on climate change and in his 2008 campaign for governor, supported cap and trade as a system to reduce emissions. Until we put a value on carbon, we're never going to be able to get serious about dealing with climate change longer term. Now, putting a value on carbon either suggests that you go to a carbon tax or you get a cap-and-trade system. Oh, well, there goes John Huntsman's hope for the uh, GOP nomination. Oh, yes, times have changed. And like his fellow contenders, Mitt Romney, Tim Pawlenty, and Newt Gingrich, Huntsman has now completely reversed his position on cap-and-trade and says the economy is now too weak. Mitt Romney reversed his position? On cap-and-trade. Ah, so he believes in global warming, just not doing anything about it. That's right. Got it.
Republicans and Democrats are already gearing up for the 2012 election, which is expected to be the most expensive in history. The 2008 election set new records for campaigns. It was the longest at 22 months and the most expensive at $1.7 billion. Obama is expected to formally kick off his reelection bid on April 14th. His campaign expects to raise as much as $1 billion overall. Aggressive fundraising is now underway, including large, low-dollar uh, events and several cities alongside exclusive gatherings that will cost as much as $35,800 to attend. To handle his re-election effort, Obama has appointed Jim Messina as campaign manager. The move disappointed progressive observers, given Messina's links to corporate America and more conservative elements in the Democratic Party. Known as Obama's enforcer, Messina has also clashed with progressives on issues like health care reform and gay rights. Ari Berman has written an article in The Nation magazine profiling Jim Messina, explaining why Messina will lead a very different campaign than 2008. Ari Berman joins us now. Well, tell us who Jim Messina is. Give us his background. Well, White House Communications Director Dan Pfeiffer calls him the most powerful man in Washington you haven't heard of. And progressives are worried about him based on his background and his actions in the White House. For a very long time, he worked for Max Baucus, the senator of Montana. Anna, chairman of the powerful Senate Finance Committee, who was one of the most conservative Democrats in the Senate. After working for Baucus, he briefly joined the Obama campaign as the campaign's chief of staff, then went to work for Rahm Emanuel in the White House, was deputy chief of staff, the same position Karl Rove held for some time, the same position Josh Lyman held on the, on the West Wing uh, for some cultural observers. And really during that time, he was thought of as first Rahm's enforcer. Then when Rahm went to Chicago to become mayor, Messina really took on the role of Rom, And during that time, he was the top liaison to progressive groups on issues like health care, on issues like gay rights. And his tenure, from my reporting, was really marked by his clashes with those progressive activists. He was supposed to be working with them, but often was instead at odds with him. And that's why Obama supporters that I talk to are worried about his elevation as campaign manager for 2012. And uh, with these progressive groups, uh, they, they used to, there was a weekly meeting or uh, every Tuesday common purpose. Can you talk about how Messina dealt with that group and what it is? Because most people yeah. across the country don't even have never heard of it. Yeah, there was this group set up called the Common Purpose Project, which really was supposed to be the gathering where administration officials would brief progressive groups, big progressive groups like MoveOn.org, labor unions, AFL-CIO, SCIU, Planned Parenthood. All the gamut of, of progressive groups in Washington, inside and outside of Washington, would be at these meetings, and there was supposed to be a back and forth. And they'd meet every Tuesday? They'd meet every Tuesday evening at the Capitol Hilton in Washington. But what Messina did is he really tightly controlled the discussions, and it was very much a one-way mode of doing business, where he said, this is the strategy, go support it. And what it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a back and forth. And there was supposed to be outside mobilization by progressive groups on things like health care, on things like gay rights. That was the whole purpose of the Common Purpose Project. But really what happened is Messina and the White House, Rahm and other people, demobilized these progressive groups, took them out of the equation on things like health care, didn't want them talking about a public option, didn't want them criticizing Max Baucus. And that had a very detrimental effect when the Tea Party exploded and there was all this mobilization on the right and none on the progressive side. And, and he would threaten to not to disinvite you if you didn't yeah, go along with the program? Absolutely. I mean, to be at these meetings, you had to be in line. You had to be with the administration. If you weren't, you would not be invited or you'd be excommunicated. It was very much a take-no-prisoner style. Messina has a take-no-prisoner style. The problem is the people he's often taking prisoner are Democratic activists and grassroots organizers, and that's why Obama supporters are worried about his role in 2012. Talk about bundling. Talk about the large donors. 
voters and what Messina is doing right now. Well, if you look at the Obama campaign in 2008, what made it interesting was the fact that they raised all this money from small donors. Now, obviously, they raised a lot of money from large donors, but they also raised a very significant amount from small donors. Thus far in the Obama campaign, Messina has basically been going around the country on a listening tour of large donors. That's been his exclusive focus thus far. And it's really a very different playbook. I mean, the Obama 2012 campaign, to me, right now, looks a lot more like the Clinton campaign in 96 or the Bush campaigns in 2000 and 2004, which is raise a lot of money from large donors, raise a lot of money from corporate America, lock these people down first and build your campaign that way. That was not the Obama model in 2008. Eight, and I think that's another thing that people are wondering about. Where is the role for the small donors in here? Where is the role for the Obama activists in this equation? How are they going to be involved in a meaningful way in this campaign? Really, what Messina is doing is he's following the Max Baucus playbook. Baucus routinely raised among the most money from special interests and had the most lobbyists on K Street of any senator for a very long time. And is the feeling of the Obama campaign already that the enthusiasm that generated all those small do- uh, donors uh, over the internet in the in the first campaign is not going to be here the second time around? Well, that's a very interesting question. It certainly faded in 2010. We saw that Democratic activists did not turn out like Republican activists turned out. There has been an explosion in some of the Democratic grassroots in states like Wisconsin and Ohio, but that has very little to do with the Obama administration. So there definitely is a feeling among Obama supporters that they need to be reactivated. They need to be brought in at a meaningful way and not just be looked at as window dressing on this campaign campaign in 2012. Thus far, that has not happened really in any, full, in any meaningful way. Uh, New York Times saying the nation's top Democratic contributors were given ambitious set of marching orders on Thursday yesterday with a select group of 450 donors each asked to raise $350,000 before the end of the year. Uh, if all members meet their goal, the tally uh, from this one group alone would be $157 million. A new goal will be set next year, expected to be much higher. Well, the Obama campaign wants to raise a billion dollars for this campaign. And in these events, you know, they're not public. The names are not released. We don't know who these donors are. We don't know what promises are being made. Maybe they're all just doing it out of the goodness of their own heart. But my feeling is if you got all these donors in a room, it would be a very different configuration of people than all the small donors who helped power the Obama campaign in 2008. Talk about other groups and issues um, that you have raised deep concerns about Jim Messina and the direction. Of course, uh, it's not Jim Messina. It's President Obama's choice for the direction he wants to go. That's how we appoint, why he appoints this, what you call, enforcement. You mean the groups that have raised questions about him? Well, if you just look at my article, I mean, the people that talk about him were activists on health care reform, for example, big groups like Health Care for America Now, the major progressive groups. I mean, they were supposed to work with Messina, and they had a lot of problems with him. Groups on gay rights, a major gay rights blogger, Joe Sudbay for America blog, basically said under Rom and Messina, the White House suffered from political homophobia. They were afraid to do gay issues in politics, and it was only towards the very, very, very end of the lame duck Congress after this tax cut deal enraged liberal Democrats that repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell became a major victory for the, for the administration and a priority for them. So there's sort of this revisionist history going on with regards to Messina. His allies say, oh, he's been fighting for progressive politics all along. Look at all the stuff that he's got done. And the groups that I talked to who worked with him say, no, 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 no. He was an obstacle 
along the way over and over and over again and we accomplish a lot of these things in spite of him so this debate is going on right now to claim Messina's legacy and to wonder who's he going to represent on the Obama campaign in his 2012. relationship with Wall Street he has a very close relationship with Wall Street. He organized a lot of these fundraising events that Bacchus did. I mean, Bacchus was chairman of the Finance Committee, raised a lot of money from Wall Street. Messina would frequently travel to New York to arrange these meetings that Bacchus had. They would have these very lavish fundraising junkets out in Montana that Messina would organize. When Bacchus kicked off his reelection campaign, he asked 50 lobbyists to raise $100,000 each for his campaign. And, and one lobbyist who attended said it, it was the most blunt message he'd ever received from a senator. So Bacchus was almost exclusively going the corporate top dollar route, and that's what Messina was doing for him, in part. Tremble for yourself, my man. You know that you have seen this all before. This is Dan Carlin from Hardcore History and Common Sense, wishing Jay a happy 500th episode. And at the rate you're going, man, I expect to have show 1000 out by Christmas. I'm jealous as heck. You do a great job. Keep up the good work, and here's to another happy 500. Now learn from your mother, or I'll spend your days biting your own neck. But it was not your fault but mine, and it was your heart on the line. I really fucked it up. Here is your next quote. Coke or Pepsi? Leno or Conan? Spicy or mild? Those were some of the trenchant questions asked by CNN's John King at what event on Monday night? Uh, that would be the Republican debate in New Hampshire. Exactly right. So the guys at the National Hockey League were desperate for ratings and they came up with a brilliant solution. Pay the GOP to have a debate the same night as one of their big games. And Americans were like, oh look, it's Ron Paul ranting about the Federal Reserve. I'd rather look at padded men hitting each other with sticks. The pundits declared Mitt Romney as the winner of the debate, presumably because he didn't actually shout the words, I'll say whatever you want me to, out loud. Tim Pawlenty was seen as the loser. I don't know if you followed this, because just the day before he had coined the term Obamnicare, mm. you know, to link Romney and the president, yeah. but when practically begged to do so, Pawlenty wouldn't say it to Romney's face. He blew it. He did something we didn't think Pawlenty could do. He fell even further in the polls. He's now in negative digits, which yeah. means that a majority of Americans do not believe he exists. <laughs> And then there was that speed round, right? With the yeah, that was what the Carl was quoting. It, what John King called it was this or that. Going he, in and out of commercials. Yes, he said he posed one question, like, for example, a mild or spicy to Governor Romney in regard to his preference for, I hope, chicken wings. And uh, Romney said, spicy. CNN, network or nitwits. <laughs> I, I loved the sort of uh, fecundity face-off because each of, each of the candidates had to introduce him or herself uh, by saying a little bit about their mm -hmm. background. Yes. And it, was, it started off with Santorum, I have seven kids. And then it went to, to Bachman, who's got well, five kids and 23 foster kids. Exactly. And then she... it went to Gingrich, who was like, I don't know, I have six or seven wives and 15 foster wives. <laughs> 
that Bachman thing was was oh. surprising to me because the one of the stories that came out after the debate was that Michelle Bachman really kind of seized the spotlight by announcing during the presidential debate that she was actually running for president. I thought, how weird would it have been if she said she wasn't running for president? <laughs> it's, yeah, Bachman's very weird. I'm imagining Michelle Bachman going down the aisle at her wedding and then turning around and saying, "Guys, I'm getting married." Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it great? Like, uh, yeah, we get it. I mean, that's why you're. <laughs> After the Republican presidential debate on June 13th, one storyline was that far-right Minnesota Representative Michelle Bachman is for real, mostly because she managed to sound, well, a little less crazy than she sounded before. There were stories about the Bachmentum in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today, all sending the same message. As the Times explained, the key question was whether Bachman could avoid the gaffes and strident rhetoric for which she is known. The paper concluded, quote, by most accounts, she did just that. Miss Bachman toned her rhetoric down a bit and offered herself as a competent, knowledgeable insider who would nonetheless carry on the fight against big government with the zeal of a Tea Party activist. Close quote. The paper added that Bachman, quote, often mocked by late-night comedians and liberal cable hosts as a nutty right-winger, wants to dispel that caricature as she pursues the nomination. Close quote. Well, it sounds like she's doing just that. At least until you turn to the Times editorial page. There, readers learned that the candidates spoke mostly gibberish about jobs in the economy, and one candidate in particular, quote, Michelle Bachman had the strangest, most simplistic economic solution of all, simply closed down the Environmental Protection Agency, which she said should really be renamed the Job-Killing Organization of America, close quote. I guess if you're writing a news article about how Bachman toned down the crazy in this debate, you have to leave out that quote. It kind of makes it sound like she didn't. Hi, this is Jimmy Dore from the Jimmy Dore Show in Los Angeles. And I wanted to wish a happy 500th episode. Congratulations. Is it happy? Is it a happy 500th? Or is it... I'm going to give you both. Happy congratulations to Jay at Best of the Left for doing an outstanding job and a service to the community. Before we get to the Republican debate, uh, Herman Cain is a leading figure. He's the Godfather Pizza CEO, and uh, he's an African American, and he's running for president on the Republican. He's trying to get the Republican nominee, and here he is sitting down with Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck has a good question to ask him. 
So wait a minute. Are you saying that it is um, uh, that Muslims have to prove there there has to be some loyalty proof? Yes, to the Constitution of the United States of America. Well, would you do that to a Catholic or would you do that to a Mormon? Nope, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No, no. See, (laughs) see, uh, and I don't think Herman Cain has thought this issue all the way through. But the downside is, if he would have thought it all the way through, the Tea Party would have hated him for it. So it's a lose lose for him. Mm -hmm. A Catholic. People don't have to do because the Vatican is a state of America, right? <laughs> well, you know what's weird? It's like these guys seem to love the Constitution, but Article 6 says that there shall be no religious test. Right. And so you go, but, oh, but if you're of a certain religion, I'm going to. First of all, they I, like to mention the Constitution. They don't like to defend what it actually stands no, for. No, they like to say they like the Constitution. Right. They like the word the Constitution. Yes. That's, that's the only word they've read in it. They like the idea. <laughs> I mean, but it's it is tough for Herman Cain. He's running for the Republican nomination, and there's only either there's two things you can do if you're running for the Republican nomination for president. You could act, uh, either be stupid or pretend to be stupid, <laughs> and I think he's doing both. I, I, I think they look at the Constitution the way a lot of people look at uh, Maya Angelou. Uh, they they know that. She says stuff that's really important. They're just not really interested in hearing what that is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there's going to be a loyalty test for Muslims, I think maybe an IQ test for Republicans. That's yeah, what I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Good idea. So then he went on to the re- debate and he said this. Are you? He goes, they said, uh, you said you're uncomfortable uh, appointing Muslims in your administration. And he said this. I would not be comfortable because you have peaceful Muslims and then you have militant Muslims, those that are trying to kill us. Yeah, see, like there's the, and that's not racist mm-hmm. what he just said. You know, it's like there's good blacks and then mm-hmm. there's the bad blacks, right? right? There's uh, there's good Jews and then there's the bad mm-hmm. Jews. There's nothing racist about that. Because a few Christians have killed people, should no. that apply to Christians <laughs> no, too? not the Christians. I would just love to see a graph that you could pull out that shows the number of people that our country has bombed and killed compared to the number of Muslims that have killed Americans. I would just love to, for him to see that representation so, so, and, and defend what he just said. And what you're saying is that once presented with the accurate facts and information that he would change his opinion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's that, a cinch. And you know that. <laughs> if we could only get to him. If we yes. could only get him the accurate information. Maybe we could let him see it in, in an analogy of different toppings on pizzas. He would understand <laughs> it. Well, it's uh, it was so. Let, so then, Newt Gingrich went on to say this at the. the, the it, it's weird it, because what Herman Cain is saying essentially is, uh, I'll break it down. He's saying there is a good form of racism and a bad form right, of racism, right. and the good form of racism is the kind we practice towards Muslims, yes. and the bad kind is the kind that they pr- practice against everyone else. Yes, that's okay. So I'm glad yeah, I, I that, yeah. I'm glad I cleared that. So then, Newt Gingrich went on to really stick his neck out. I just want to go out on a limb here. I am in favor of saying to people, if you're not prepared to be loyal to the United States, you will not serve in my administration, <laughs> period. Oh, oh, my God. That was the oh, my God. I forgot. I didn't know that he said, I'm going to go out on a limb here before he said it. Was he saying that sarcastically? I, I don't know, but he, he continued. He did this. He did this. In dealing with the Nazis, and we did this in dealing with the He's communists, serious. and it was controversial both times. And both times we discovered after a while, That's you know, staff there are some genuinely bad people who would like uh, to infiltrate our country, and we have got to have the guts to stand up and say no. Uh, from uh, oh. not that he's like um, retrograde at all, but I get you know I I think if he's elected, we can be assured Dalton Trumbull will not be hired to write a screenplay. <laughs> what? 
Well, that's a good Hell reference, no. Frank. Not a lot of people know that reference, but that's good. He was a blacklisted writer, right? Yeah, during the yeah. McCarthy. Mm-hmm. So he's coming out. Is he's pro McCarthy? He's saying McCarthy had it right. Yeah. And the fact that, and we later found out after McCarthy that there actually were some communists who were trying to infiltrate our government. People go, see, that justifies McCarthy. No, that doesn't. That doesn't justify McCarthy just because there might be some Muslims somewhere right now plotting to bomb a plane in America. That doesn't make what Herman Cain did okay, and it doesn't mm. make what Peter King's doing okay in mm. Congress. Just because there is a threat doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I, I love how uh, the, these right-wing guys always want smaller government, and yet they were for a, a bureaucracy right. determining people's patriotism they keep in the, the 50s. government, keep the government Reagan. out of our backs. Yes. You know, well, oh, right. but you have to sign this loyalty oath. <laughs> right. Right, so you're saying that they Ronald Reagan, who they all hold up as the benchmark of smaller government, turned in people's names for the worst form of bureaucracy ever, the House on American Activities. Yes. Committee. House on Un-American Activities. Un- un-act- uh, Un-American. Un-American. Yes. We should videotape this show. I'm going to start videotaping but this he show. May, but Reagan's main motivation behind that was that he didn't get hired to be the lead in the Francis the Talking Mule movie. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was bitter. Yeah. And, uh, by the way, uh, Newt Gingrich talking about loyalty, really. You know, this is a, this is a guy that left his divorced his first wife, started having an affair with her while she had cancer. Oh, yeah. Was that her second wife? His the first wife. one of his wives. His he, first wife was the one with cancer, I believe. Yeah. And then he, st- he ended up leaving his second wife for his current wife. Yeah. Yes. And he would probably say that he recused himself from the marriage so that she could focus in on her cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so here is, can I just play, here's Herman Cain. I just have two quick examples of what we talked about. Citizen Cain? So they, how they don't know what the Constitution, what's in the Constitution, and here he is. We <laughs> need to reread the Constitution and enforce the Constitution. So he's says we need to reread the Constitution and enforce it, and people go nuts. Or in this case, read the Constitution. In this case, read. So here he is, then then a second later he quotes the Constitution, but it turns out it's not the Constitution. There's a little section in there that talks about life living in the pursuit of happiness. No, No, not in the Constitution. (laughs) Wrong one. That's the Declaration of Independence. Sorry, got it wrong. So here's John Boehner. This is my copy of the Constitution. And I'm going to stand here with our founding fathers. Who wrote in the preamble, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Okay. I can't believe he's holding the Constitution while being wrapped in the flag. That's amazing <laughs> that he can do that. And misquoting it. Yes. And not in the, again, that's not in the they Constitution. They the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution mixed up, just like a lot of people got uh, Melrose Place and Beverly Hills 902. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I certainly hope you enjoyed the 500th episode of the show, and I hope that I have a commentary uh, worthy of it. Um, well, I did some math to prepare for this commentary, so uh, it's probably going to be pretty good. Uh, if, if you have to do math before you talk, you know you're in for something good. But I have a couple of things I want to talk about first. I just got back from Netroots Nation. It was an amazing conference, an amazing time, and incredibly productive, and... Um, But the first thing I need to talk about is something that's actually been kind of weighing on me for a few days since the first day of the conference. And so this is what happened. I I, I had to work the morning of 
the first day of the conference. So the morning I took off, I got there in the afternoon after the registration area had cleared out. So I, I walk right up to the registration table. Uh, no, no one's you know in front or behind me. No one's waiting or anything. And there are two women behind the desk. And I, you know, hope I think I said hello, and I told them my name, uh, gave them my last name, Tomlinson. Uh, and so woman one begins looking for my name, and woman two kind of steps up a little closer and says, "Oh, wh- wh- sorry, what was your last name again?" And I was quizzical. I, why do you need to know it again? Well, Tomlinson. Uh, it's Tomlinson. She said J, and I said yes, thinking to myself, honestly, this is what went through my head. They must have been waiting for me because I spell my name with an exclamation point, and that causes people to notice it and remember it and then be very curious about uh, who is going to show up with that particular name. And so I thought that's what had happened. That, that's what happened at the registration desk when I uh, was uh, checking in for Obama's inauguration in D.C. They, uh, they were very excited to see me. They were wondering who would show up uh, with their name spelled with an exclamation point. Turned out it was me. And so... So this is what I think that she's referring to, but then she says, oh, well, hi, like, good to meet you. I'm one of your subscribers. And I said, oh, well, that's excellent, or something very much to that effect. And at this moment, uh, woman one has found my name, has pulled out my fancy orange lanyard to uh, as my identification for the conference, and begins uh, handing me the lanyard and telling me simultaneously uh, which sets of escalators I needed to go down and what set of doors to walk through and which direction to turn in order to get to a particular table wh- where I would pick up a bag with other things. And so I barely managed to take any of that in as I was reeling from the idea, you know, this woman who had just introduced herself uh, as, as a listener that I thought was talking about my name and threw me for a loop and then I would be in hand of these things and told these things and I really couldn't process all of it at the same time and so what I ended up doing was saying okay well thanks and waved to both of them and turned around and left and what I realized very soon after was that I completely blew this woman off who was a listener of the show and I hope still is and I felt terrible about it I, I realized I'm I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people who you think, you know, you, you hear them on the radio or on the television, and you think, oh, like, they're probably a good guy. And then if you have the opportunity to meet them in person and they're an ass to you, then it's just heartbreaking. And I thought, I realized, like, I didn't ask her name. I didn't ask where she came from. I didn't ask how long she'd listened. I didn't ask where she, you know, I, I nothing. I, I was just, I was flustered and confused and I panicked. And I turned and left. So anyways, to, to woman number two, whose name I don't know, at the registration table, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that that happened. Uh, I'm, I'm really not that guy. I'm not the asshole uh, that I'm sure you thought I was. And, um, and I feel so much better for getting that off my chest. Now, the conference itself was, was amazing. You know, like, it's not about the sessions. It's not about the keynote speakers. It's about the people you meet. Completely random connections you never would have known that you would make and the people who you hope to see and get a chance to talk with. So both of those things happened to me. I made amazing connections uh, with people who I didn't know existed before and strengthened the connections with some of my, you know, new media podcasting colleagues. Um, that, you know, that was great. It was in- incredibly, you know, time incredibly well spent. 
And so that's the big takeaway. Like there's no individual story that sums it all up. So just know that uh, the takeaway from the conference was, you know, we had conversations that led to ideas, which led to plans, which are now in the very beginning stages of being implemented. And we're still just like full to the brim with this residual like excitement and energy left over from the conference. So, you know, it doesn't make sense to go into details now because who knows how much of it's going to come to fruition and work, but we're excited and, and it's always great to kind of be rejuvenated like that and get, you know, a fresh set of ideas and, and uh, you know, new ways to work together and, and support each other and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's the takeaway from Netroots. Now, now to the math that I promised. So this, it's a 500th episode, right? And uh, the only way I have gotten to where I am is because members support the show. And so what I wondered was, you know, so before members were supporting the show, it was just a hobby. And so I did one episode a week. Uh, if, if everyone was lucky, you know, some weeks would get skipped because something would happen and I just wouldn't do it. So I was making like three or four episodes a month. And now I'm making, you know, about 11 on, a, on an average month. And so I wondered to myself, how many episodes have I done that would not have been done if not for the members? What I came up with was almost 150. 150 hours of programming have been produced exclusively because the members support the show. And that blew my mind. You know, 150 hours of content has gone out into the world, been heard by thousands of people. Those people hopefully have used all of that information to, you know, back up their arguments, uh, make their decisions on, you know, on, on uh, you know, their opinions on certain uh, topics. And hopefully, and I know it's true, you know, but been inspired. You know, people get inspired by what they hear on the show all the time, and it makes them go out and go to a protest, or they get involved, uh, you know, locally somehow, or they quit their job and they go get another job that's politically active. I mean, like, it's it's all happened. I've heard all these stories. And so I say it all the time, but at this moment, I really just have to, like, having done that math and being blown away by it, in light of that, I have to thank the members, obviously, for, for making the show possible. It's, um, I think, I think the reach that we are all creating, but you know, the, if you donate five bucks a month and you allow me to do this and, uh, you know, and produce way more than I ever could, uh, otherwise, you know, you're having a massive impact on thousands of people who get to hear this content. So that's exciting. Now, I actually really don't want to make this all about me because I'm still left over with the, you know, feelings of camaraderie uh, with my fellow podcasters from Netroots. And so I did more math. And what I what I thought about was uh, the cost of all of the membership programs for all of the the shows whose hosts I met at Netroots, just as an example. So if you if you were to sign up for our Best of the Left, the David Pakman show, the Majority Report with Sam Cedar and the Young Turks, you sign up for a regular membership with all of those shows, four shows, it would cost you $1 per day. And that blew my mind. Again, I was like, are you kidding? It's only a dollar a day? And that's not just for one show, that's for four shows? That's nuts. I thought, there's no way that I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, you know, 
So to, to add to that fact, this sentiment, you know, I put my money where my mouth is. I support other shows. I'm members of other shows and and other organizations, you know, non-media organizations who ask for money. You know, I made the decision a couple of years ago to, you know, like I never donate much, but if I can donate, you know, five bucks on a recurring basis to to something I support, then it's not going to break my bank. And what I realized was I immediately began to feel a whole lot better about myself. So I'm going to take this opportunity to say something that, you know, I've been meaning to say for a while, which is to, you know, become a donor, like just make the decision that the way I did a couple of years ago and just decide, you know what, like I'm going to start donating to stuff. Like if someone who, if there's someone who I believe in, I'm going to find a way to give them five bucks a month because if enough people make that sort of decision, it makes shows like this possible. So now, of course, today I want to thank uh, a couple of special members, a few special members. I want to thank, uh, and all of these members are still in good standing. Member number one, Sandra B, signed up on, uh, she signed up six months before the official uh, membership program began. I just put a link on the site saying, if you want to make a recurring donation, here's how you do it. So on January 7th, 2009, uh, she signed up for her first membership and has been sticking with the show ever since. Uh, member number two, Michael L, signed up on February 4th, again, before the membership program began in, uh, in 2009, and was the first socialist member, you know, years before it was labeled. But he, he went above and beyond and, and wanted to donate 10 bucks a month instead of five. Uh, and then members three and four, th these were these were the first members to sign up after the the official program was announced. And I got such a kick out of the fact that they're both named Catherine and their last names both start with C. <laughs> so uh, members uh, Catherine spelled with a C, C, signed up for her uh, socialist membership on uh, June 3rd, 2009. And Catherine spelled with a K, C signed up for her socialist membership on June 4th, 2009. Um, of course, you know, both way before they were named socialist, but they, they both went above and beyond. And uh, Catherine spelled with a C, C actually just upgraded to a communist membership. And, and like both of the, both of the, the, the Catherines have like, they've had their accounts canceled, you know, their uh, debit card or, or credit card expired and PayPal like canceled them and they had to sign up and one of them like multiple times and they've done like individual donations just to keep up. And like, it's amazing that they're still members. Uh, so, whew, it's amazing, it's amazing. I'm blown away. There's, I, there's a lot to be blown away by today, apparently. So that's gonna do it. I hope you've been inspired in one way or another. I, I, feel, I feel like I would be completely remiss if I didn't just plant the seed of an idea and just say like, like if you're doing okay financially, like, you know, I'm not, I'm, this isn't the sort of thing I'm gonna do like ever. But 500 episodes, all I'm saying is if you're doing really well and you want to say congratulations and give me like a buck for each episode I've done, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying. I just want to plant that idea. For everyone out there, like if you've been inspired uh, in one way or another, I, I hope that you will go out and do something good with it. And, um, you know, I'm inspired by every message I get from, from you guys all the time. And, uh, you guys are what make me keep going. So as long as, as long as I can, 
I'm going to keep doing this show, and I'm overjoyed that I had the chance to do it. So now, as always, you can stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always available in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, with an exclamation point, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, as you just learned in great detail from bestoftheleft.com. But